Um, but this morning, I invite you now, as we come to hear God's word, to turn to Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 12. Uh, so we're jumping ahead to Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 12, because this passage will help us read prophets like Jeremiah better, uh, so that when we go back and look at a couple key passages in the coming weeks, uh, we'll be in a place where that we can read them more profitably. The other reason that we're jumping ahead for today is because this passage focuses on one of the great mysteries of the Bible, which is the relationship of divine sovereignty, which means God's absolute power and rule over everything, and human responsibility, which means our ability to will to do good and to will to do evil. And what makes this passage so interesting and so important is that it connects these two mysteries, the absolute sovereignty of God and the freedom of human beings to choose right and wrong. It connects them in the person of God himself, in the kind of God he is, and in the way that he then chooses to relate to us. Which means that it moves it out of this sort of academic, philosophical, rationalistic, definitional categories that we tend to think of these issues in, and it moves it into relational categories, especially the relational category of faith. Specifically, whether or not we will trust, that is have faith, that God will use his sovereign power in response to our repentance. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12 is asking us, <clears throat> excuse me, if we believe that God will respond to our repentance, or if we believe that God will do whatever he wants regardless of anything we ever do or say. And this clearly matters, because if you believe that Jesus is a response-seeking God and acts in a responsive way to our actions, you'll live in one way. But if you think that nothing you do matters, and that God never responds and never takes human actions into account ever, you'll live another way. Here, Jesus wants us to see that he is actively seeking our response and that he does respond to our response to his word. Uh, so I think what we're going to focus on this morning is powerful. I think it's hopeful. And I really think it's going to encourage us this morning. So here's our plan. Uh, after we read the passage and pray, we're going to think about three things that we see in it, of course. Jesus' power is absolute is the first one. Second is Jesus uses his power responsively and responsibly and I'm going to try not to trip over those as I preach them this, this morning. And then finally, our response depends on whether or not we believe that Jesus means what he says. So let's read our passage, and then we'll start our reflections. Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 12. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise, and go to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel." If at any time I declared concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. 
And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will build and plant it, and it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, that is vain. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Thus far the reading of God's own word. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for this word which you have inspired and preserved for us and which through your spirit's operation is living and active, dividing soul from spirit and bone from marrow. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would be living and active now in our life in that it would um, divide obedience from disobedience and faith from doubt in idols from worship of the living God. We pray that your word through your spirit would give us minds to understand, ears to hear, and hearts to believe your word. And we ask, Father, as well, that the words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of our hearts as those who are all called to hear and respond and submit to your word, that they would all be pleasing in your sight this morning. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So the first thing that we're going to think about is Jesus' absolute power from verses 1 through 4. And I'm just going to read those again so that they're fresh in our mind here. Uh, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I'll let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. So I have just a couple of things that I want to say about these verses. The first is I think it's important to realize that while there's a lot that could be explored in this picture, and which I think is totally worth exploring and meditating on, um, one of which is the fact that the potter doesn't throw away the spoiled clay, but keeps it and reworks it into something else. Still, clearly, the point that is being driven home is the absolute power of the potter over the clay. Right, so in the image, we see the potter making the clay. We see the potter reworking the clay after something happens to it, which is another interesting thing to sort of think about, like what happened to the clay. And then the point is driven home at the end that the clay's final shape is the result of the potter's decisions about what is both good for the clay and also one assumes what good use it can have. Two other aspects of this picture that are interesting to think about. Uh, so the potter molds he shapes and then he remolds according to his absolute power and judgment. And then after we hear Jesus, after this, then we hear Jesus tell us then in verse 6, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So clearly, the main thing Jesus emphasizes in this image is his absolute power. And in that light, I think it's helpful then to note two other things about this image generally. And the first is that this is not the most common or normal way that God talks about his relationship to us as his people, or even his relationship to humanity generally. God's normal way of talking about our relationship doesn't center on power, but on care and love. 
So to pick an example that's near and dear to all of our hearts, God is our Father, which in the Bible means that he's the one who brought us to life. Um, And actually, it's kind of interesting to notice that in the Bible, the source of life is most often described as coming from the father, not from the mother, which isn't a denial uh, of its root in motherhood too, but just most commonly, fatherhood is the source of life in the Bible. And the easiest example of that is it's the father who begets in all the generationless. And I point this out because I think we tend to think about this differently, and I don't think it, the way we think about it is wrong. I mean, but just knowing the difference is helpful to hearing the Bible better. It's good to know that when God says he's our father, the focus isn't so much on his authority, but on his being a source of life to us, which, of course, is foundational to love and care. You cannot love something that does not exist, <laughs> right? Um, And also part of what God means when he says he's our father is that he's the one who defends his promises to us, us, which are, of course, all about our relationship to him. And just to add this tiny rabbit trail to the one I just gave, you'll notice that in the Old Testament, God isn't called father very often. But when he is, it's always at times when Israel is in danger of losing what God has promised to give to her, which basically means losing her life with him. So you can think of Exodus when God tells Pharaoh, let my son... Israel go. See, God is our father because he not only gives life, but he protects his children's life. So God's role as a father is about love and care, and so is God's role as a shepherd and friend, savior, right? It's a relational word. What is he doing? He's saving our relationship. He's redeeming us from justice so that we can live in a relationship with him. Or to throw a female image in there, mother hen, also relational, right? And Proverbs, the parent who teaches wisdom, that is how to live with God and other people well. And even the most fundamental images of God in the Bible, which are God as king and God as God, are all about love and care. So God defines kingship in the Bible as defending and preserving and providing for his people. It's about love and care. And also God's role as the God of Israel, the one they worship, right? That focuses on love and care because it's as they worship God and it's as we worship God that we humans are transformed into people who love and care like God loves and cares. It's a fundamental truth in the Bible that you become like what you worship. So God's role as God and object of worship which is of, of course has a power element to it, it's not denying that at all, but it's, it's deeply connected to relational wholeness and growing in love and care for God and for each other. So all of that to say that this image of Jesus having absolute power over us to shape us as he sees fit is not the normal way of talking about our relationship to him, which should make us do two things. It should make us wonder why this image tends to dominate the way we think about God. Because I think it it does for many of us when it doesn't dominate in the Bible. The second thing it should do is make us ask, why is God then talking like this in Jeremiah? I mean, if you think back to the first four chapters, we've seen God as as the spurned husband who is jealously trying to win back his wife's love and cause her to stop being abusive and wicked, right? It's all relational. And then here in chapter 17, the image shifts. 
And I think for many of us, it's because we can think that really, at the end of the day, power is the most important thing to Jesus. But because power is so obviously unattractive, he just sort of hides it behind a curtain of beautiful sounding words. But from time to time, the curtain gets peeled back and we get to see God's true self, right? Like in the Wizard of Oz. So is Jesus then really just a manipulative, power-hungry sociopath? Uh, no. Here's why. If you look at the Bible, you will see that this image of the potter and the clay is used in very select places, just like the idea of God as our Father. It's used in our meditation verse this morning, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, to assure us that as Christians, which are jars of clay that God has made, but which are cracked by frailty and also by sin, that we are still used by God because his power makes the light of Jesus' redemption, which is fundamentally relational, right? Shine through our cracks. It's used in Isaiah 45, 9 through 10, in a very powerful passage as a way to tell Israel that as the potter has the absolute right to do what he wants over the clay, so God has the absolute right and ability to save Israel from disaster. Probably most famously, it's used in Romans 9 to describe the mystery of election, where Paul tells us that as the potter, God has the absolute right to choose whoever he wants. And we usually get stuck on you know, that sort of last point, forgetting that that choosing who is saved is about choosing who gets to be in a restored relationship. It's about God telling Jewish people, I can save Gentiles too. And God telling Gentile people, I can save Jews too. You don't get to constrain who I call into relationship with me. I get to do whatever I want. It is I get to save into my family whoever I want. It's relational. And so if you put these passages in their context together, you see that the point seems to be that this issue of power and right is used whenever God is talking about his ability and his right to create and protect and renew and reshape relationship. And just to drive that home, um, there's lots of times when I feel like I've never read the Bible before, and this is one of those times. It was this offhanded comment I read in a commentary uh, where I, I learned that the very first time God is presented as a potter and we as clay is Genesis 2, where God forms us out of the dust. Right? So the very first image of God as potter and us as clay is where God's absolute power and right are aimed at the creation of an eternal relationship with his people. Which brings us to our second point, which is that Jesus uses his power responsively and responsibly. And that's verses 7 through 10. I'll read those again. Verse 7. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. So in keeping what we just talked about, excuse me, keeping with, with what we just talked about, Jesus now explicitly, and I think Maybe at first, maybe after we talked about not so surprisingly, but at first surprisingly, connects his absolute right and power over the clay 
to the way he then uses it in relationship to us. Because if you think about the analogy sort of that he's drawing generally, is that the direction you'd expect him to go? Can I do with you whatever you want? So I will respond to you. What? But that's what he does. And as an aside, this is why we need to be careful, too, about how we interpret images like the potter and the clay in the Bible, because clearly clay cannot respond, but we can. Which means if we just sort of looked at the, pot, the image of the potter and the clay outside of the context that God has placed it in, we could become from the mistaken opinion that from God's point of view, we either don't have a will, which Reformed theology does not teach. Can you be clear about that? Reformed people do not believe you do not have a will. We believe you have a bound will. It's different, but you have a will. Um, or we can think that our will doesn't matter, which clearly this text says is not true. See, clearly that's not the takeaway, because here Jesus is clearly saying that he responds to our response. So God says here, if I tell you, like I told Nineveh in the prophet Jonah, that I'm going to tear you down and you repent, then I will relent and not tear you down. And if I promise to build you up, this is the part that always makes me pause, and then you choose to do evil, then I will relent of that promise and I will tear you down. And just a quick side note, I think that translation of God's response as relent is excellent here because as one commentator says, the focus here is not on God's psychology, right? Whether or not he's changing his mind, the focus is on God's responsiveness. God responds to our response. If we turn from sin, he turns from judgment. If we turn from righteousness, he turns from blessing like any good parent, right? You respond when your children respond. God responds when we respond. Which is why I titled this point, Jesus uses his power responsively and responsibly. Because here Jesus tells us that he is seeking response. When he declares judgment, even if it is put in the start, harshest terms, he is seeking the response of repentance. And when uh, he declares blessing, he is seeking the response of us using that blessing to pursue growing godliness and righteousness. Jesus is responsive. He is seeking a response from us to his words. And Jesus is also responsible. And you can see that responsibility exercised, I think, especially in the second half of this. Because if God promises to build up a nation, that means he's promising that their culture and their institutions are going to be planted in history because they are going to be helpful. But if that nation decides to pursue a way of life that is evil and sinful, then Jesus is not going to prolong their national life because that will be harmful and dangerous. There's a reason why he tears down. There's a reason why he builds up. Because you see, the goal of Jesus' responsiveness is aimed at the responsible growth of godliness and worship and love of Jesus by faith in this world. It's about healthy, saving relationships with us as his people and God where we walk with humility and love and faith with the living God through his son, Jesus. Two things here before moving on then to our final point. The first is, I think I need to say, just as a sort of a general side note, that Jesus, while he is response-seeking, is not constrained by our responses. Jesus is still God, right? He's still free, 
most free, absolutely free. Um, there are times when Jesus doesn't change his mind about something, no matter what our response is. But I hope, given what we've said so far, here's the second thing, uh, that this gives us encouragement that when that's the case, that that's because it's for our growing relationship with him too. You see, it's interesting to think about the Apostle Paul, who wrote in Romans, where you get Romans 9, the potter and the claimage, for God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who he loves and are called according to his purpose. I think Paul gets there not just because the Holy Spirit is sort of putting that thought into his mind, but is using the words that he is reflecting on, because clearly Paul has been reflecting on Jeremiah to write Romans, right? Whenever God chooses to respond or not respond, the goal is always the same, to build up his people. Because again, I think you can see in the Bible, Jesus' absolute power is always being used in a way that seeks and fosters and grows and protects and restores relationship with his saints. The second thing I want to say is that while God is responsive, here we're going to start transitioning a little bit, we are not always responsive. An important part of the clay image here is that the clay is still moldable, which is a hard word for me to say for some reason, moldable, able to be shaped. That is, it still responds to the hands of the potter. And I say that that's important because, uh, because as Walter Mobley points out, who's my favorite Old Testament commentator, when he's reflecting on the book of Jeremiah, Mobley points out that in the very next chapter, chapter 19, God commands Jeremiah to take a potter's flask, a potter's jar, which clearly relates it to the potter's house, right? And break it. Why? Because just as the potter's jar has been hardened and is now unmoldable, moldable, so... Israel, Judah, has become hardened and is now unmoldable, unshapeable. And so now what Jesus has to do is use his absolute power to break Israel because by breaking Israel, he makes them moldable again, shapeable. Which is why I think this image also has deep and powerful connection with another very common biblical image, the soft heart and the hard heart. A heart of flesh, right? A soft heart responds to God. A heart of stone, a hard heart, doesn't. And I think they go together here. We are responsive to God and thus shapeable to the degree that our hearts are soft and we listen to God. And we are unresponsive to God and thus need to be broken to the degree that our hearts are heart, are hard and we don't respond to God. Now, there are uh, a number of reasons in the Bible why our hearts get hard or remain soft. Uh, but time is flying, so I'm going to focus just on why Judah's heart here is hard and why she has to be shattered so she can be molded again. And that's verse 11 through 12. So verse 11, Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you, and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Right, so here's the prophetic warning. I'm going to judge you, but if you respond, I'll repent. Right, notice what this comes directly on the heels of. If I declare disaster and you turn, I will relent. But then verse 12, another surprising turn. 
But they say, they are saying, it's present tense, they are saying, that is vain, we will follow our own plans, and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart? Uh, so why does Israel respond this way? Well, our translation has it that Israel says that's vain. And I find this to be unfortunate uh, as a translation choice because in this context, vanity would mean that Israel doesn't believe that God's judgment is important or they don't believe that their sin or their repentance is very important. Uh, it puts the focus exactly where the Hebrew doesn't. Because what the Hebrew says is, that's hopeless. Now think about the context. God promises to respond if they repent, and they say, that's hopeless. Or as it can also be translated, that idea causes me to despair. And if you were to do a word search in your English Bibles, you'd see that when people despair of God, or when they are hopeless about God, that just like here, they are despairing or they're hopeless because they do not believe that Jesus is trustworthy and good. They do not believe that Jesus is as good as his word. What Israel is saying is, there is no way that we can really trust God to respond to us. He will not use his power to change us if we repent. It's hopeless. So we're going to do what we've been doing and hope that that works out instead. So what makes Israel's heart hard and unresponsive is her distrust in God's responsiveness. She didn't believe that God's power would join with God's mercy to bring redemption. And while there's other things at play too, that's what Jesus wants us to focus on here in this text. Israel doesn't respond to Jesus' call to repentance because she thinks the idea of Jesus actually responding to them is hopeless. And it brings despair. He'll never listen. He'll never respond. He's just going to do whatever he wants to do anyway, regardless of what we choose to do or not choose to do. And so in that light, I want to conclude with this. The thing that keeps hearts soft, like Jesus commands Israel to do earlier in Jeremiah, which we heard a couple of those, the thing that keeps hearts soft is trust in the character of Jesus. If we believe that Jesus is a response-seeking God who uses his absolute power and authority in responsive and responsible ways, then we'll trust that the way we live and respond matters. But if we believe that Jesus is a tyrant who can't be trusted, who uses his power without regard to how we live, then we'll eventually have hard hearts because what's the point of change? But my friends, that vision of God is not the picture of God that the Bible presents anywhere, especially here. Uh, because as we just considered throughout the Bible, God uses his power to create, sustain, and reshape our relationship with him. He uses his power to become our father and our savior and our king and our God and one of my favorite images, our friend. And my hope is that this morning you'll join me in trusting Jesus and choose to respond to him as he has offered to you in Christ. And that if you've been doubting God's responsiveness, that you would find the encouragement here to trust Jesus. Jesus is listening, he is responsive, and he has chosen to use his absolute right and power to relent when we repent 
so that he can save us from our sins and build us up in Jesus. So let's not despair. Let's not be hopeless. Let's believe and turn to Jesus for life. Amen? Let's pray. Our trying God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you uh, because we know that you do not need to be response-seeking. You do not need to pay attention to us, but you do. Uh, You enter into a relationship with us, and you hear us when we call, and you relent from disaster. And so, Father, we pray uh, that you would cause us to trust you so that if we are afraid that if we turn to you in repentance that you will be silent or uh, ignore us, we pray that you would encourage us uh, to know that you hear us and that you respond to us and that you draw near to us. And Lord, we also pray that as your people, you would preserve us um, from taking your promises of blessing and using them as a platform for which to do evil. Lord, instead, make us to be a people who turn your blessings into further blessings, uh, who grow in godliness, who seek wisdom, who love you and your word and our neighbor, uh, so that we would not only be planted, but remain planted and grow and uh, show the light of Jesus. And Lord, we pray this all in his name. Amen.